Guest today is Bruce Chanel, singer, songwriter, and the man who brought you the classic song "Hey Baby." But there's much more behind his story because after he moved to Nashville, he had much success as a songwriter in this town as well. So, uh, without much further ado, please welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour, Bruce Chanel. Thank you, Andreas. It's great to be here with you, man. Thank, thanks for being here. We, we've been friends for a few years now, and it's always great spending time with you and uh, being able now to talk about your career and your life in music. I've been looking forward to that. Well, I appreciate that, and I'm more than happy to. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. So uh, what, what are some of your earliest memories of music growing up? Uh, when I was a young boy, about five, my dad was uh, in the contracting business, and he had remodeled a barbershop for a fella, and he also had a hamburger stand next door. And he didn't have enough money to pay dad for the work he'd done, but he asked him if he would accept this guitar as part of it. And it was a big old yellow uh, classic, Stella Classic, and it had a big body on it. And uh, I had a cousin that was living with us at a time, and he played guitar. So my dad took the guitar and said, yeah, sure, I'd like for the boys to learn how to play if they can. So we got free hamburgers for a time and a guitar. <laughs> and uh, my cousin played, my cousin uh, J.W., but we everybody called him Snooky. So Snooky taught my brother John and I. He taught my brother John first. He was older than me by four years. But I'd sit around the edge and watch him play, you know, and I wanted to play it too, so every chance I got, when they put it down, if it was there long enough, I'd get a hold of it and go to fiddling with it. And then they never chastised me, other than to say, just be careful, don't don't bump it and, and break it. But other than that, they didn't mind me handling the guitar. And and through them, I learned G, C, and D, and they got me on my way. And uh, I'd always loved music since I was a kid. I mean. I'd be laying up under the ironing board with my mom, ironing the wash, you know. <laughs> and at 12 o'clock each day, there was a light crust doughboys came on WBAP in Fort Worth, Texas. And we didn't live far from there. We lived at Dallas at the time. And we'd hear that program. And I was saying, I'd love that music, you know. I've always loved, I love the chunk of that guitar rhythm, you know, you'd hear on those good records. So that, that was really the enticement of me, just the joy of singing and hearing those. And I'd go buy those songbooks at the drugstore with the popular songs in them yeah. of the day and look up the writers and see how they, And I wanted to write one that would look like theirs on that page, you know. So it gives you kind of a template to go for, but then, then you got to find the words and the right ones to string them together. 
people say, I could have written that. I said, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, you just got to string the words together in the right way, and it and it seems to work. Yeah, but, but you had that whole songwriter thing planted fairly early then. Well, I, I actually wasn't writing then. I just wanted to. And I'd make up little stuff, but I, I wasn't uh, wise enough on the instrument or singing or writing to really come up with a song, I suppose. So it wasn't that gifted kind of thing. It's, it's um, I mean, some of it is, but a lot of it's been hard work for me. I, I'm one of those guys that has to go to work and dig in the mine, you know, to come up with it. And a lot of people seem inspired, and they just rattle it off, and that's great, too. It comes in different ways. Willie Nelson was asked uh, by someone, which comes first, the words of the music, and he said yes. So that's kind of how it operates. It's just a little inspirations that get you going. Yeah. So did you did you start performing out when you were fairly young? Uh, actually, the the first public performance I did, I guess, was uh, my brother was a freshman at high school, and they had a talent show there. And any of their families that wanted to come and be on it, they could. So, John, I had been practicing Y'all Come by uh, Arlie Duff. He was a school teacher, but he had a big hit record on Y'all Come. Y'all come to see us when you can. And so I had learned that and was picking it. And uh, he took me to this talent show, and we got second. Uh, I was amazed we got <laughs> anything, but uh, we did. We got second on that. And uh, just playing at school, they'd have programs at school, and I'd bring my guitar and play. I had an art teacher I didn't know was a guitarist. And I pulled my big old yellow guitar up there, and he said, oh, that's a beautiful guitar. And he sat down with it in a chair and started playing it like Chet Atkins. <laughs> and I, I was amazed. He said, well, play us a song. So I beat out what I knew, and he really praised me, you know, and encouraged you, you know. Good. You get encouragement along. A lot of kids don't get that. And and I was encouraged, especially by my parents from the beginning. They wanted me to sing. I sang with them and around the house and at church and everything. So they liked me to sing, and I learned to play that guitar. And uh, when I was about, I had bands since I learn how to play. We'd be friends, get together, and make up a band, you know, always. And by the time I was 14, I had a band, and we kind of played the local dance and the youth centers in the area. And uh, all the popular songs, we just covered all the hit songs that were out at the time, you know. And that seemed to work okay. Um, and just kept working from there. So by the from the time I was 14 and working through that, and hearing Sun Records and Elvis come on the scene and Carl Perkins and Little Richard and all the people that everybody's loved, you know, that were the foundation of the change from the old way of doing radio and music with the smoothest sound with Vaughn Monroe and Teresa Brewer and Patti Page. They were wonderful talents and singers and multi-million selling artists, you know, it would be. But the kids felt a different energy. They wanted a different energy coming from their music. I remember that. I, I liked all that stuff they'd played. I liked Lawrence Welk's orchestra. But it it didn't move me. <laughs> but Bo Diddley moved me. And so did other people, you know, uh, coming along. So that's what we all fell in love with. And we'd make up a band and go play that music somewhere, you know. And out of that came meeting people. 
and networking. And uh, I played, I finally worked up and won a contest and got to sing one time at the Big D Jamboree in Dallas, which was the big show there. And uh, <clears throat> I only got to do it that one time. And then uh, my dad said, have you ever thought about going to the Louisiana Hayride? It's at Shreveport, Louisiana. And it was kind of like second banana to the Grand Ole Opry. I mean, everybody that played the opera would come and play down there, too. They'd do a show. So they they were trying to do that, and they had Johnny Horton as a main star. And uh, he had Honky Tonk Man and a bunch of great records, you know. And uh, I said, no, I, I have, but I said, my old guitar, it's kind of beat up. I don't, I don't know if that's going to work, you know. So he came home the next week, and he had the— a new Gibson J200, a jumbo, sunburst, beautiful in a leather case. I couldn't believe it, you know. And uh, I said, that must have cost a fortune. And he said, it's $365 with a leather case, <laughs> which was a ton of money to us in those days. He said, let's go with the hayride. So I said, okay. So we bundled up and went for the hayride. That next Saturday morning, we drove to Shreveport from Grapevine, which was between Dallas and Fort Worth, Texas. So we drove to Shreveport and went to KWKH, the radio station that sponsored the show. My dad went in, and uh, we got in about noon or so, and we had lunch and then went down there. And luckily, somebody was there on a Saturday, uh, Tillman Franks, who was general manager of the Louisiana Hayride and Johnny Horton's manager and ran the, the whole thing happened to be there and my dad said I brought my son to sing for you and he said well, where'd y'all come from and he told him he said you drove down this morning he said he said yeah and he said look I'm pretty busy but I will make time he said just give me a little while so he went about his business and after a while he did come back and said come on in my office and he said sing me something so I got that guitar out and I had practiced you know a lot of Marty Robbins songs and all those great hits. I knew all those. I could do those. So I'd sing him one, and he said, yeah, I like that. Sing me another one. So I'd sing another one. And I sang for him for about an hour. I, almost everything that I felt like I knew that I could play, you know. And he said, have you got anything to wear on the show tonight? And I said, yeah, I've got a jacket in the car. He said, well, great. He said, you'll be on tonight then. And we're going. He said, but... He said, just do one of those Marty Robbins songs that you did. They know those. And it was a country show, yeah. you know. Uh, even though Elvis had been there and shook it up, <laughs> and all the kids were, you know, showing up for him and everything, that, that would have been like 1954, 55. And then he really broke out in 56, and then he was not back there anymore after that. But that was some of the shows that he was playing early on. And I, I never saw him at that time. I never met him or anything. But he just happened to be up there, and Tillman had been his manager while he was at the Hayride, getting gigs, book him, and stuff like that, I guess along with those people in Memphis. So it was a steady stop for him at the Hayride, and he could make pretty good money. And that, that's kind of the way that I got into the business. When I left high school, a coach asked me what I was going to do and I said, well, I think I'm going to try this music business. And he said, well, it's a rough one. He said, but good luck. He said, I like you singing. Good luck to you. So then by the, I had written uh, 
Hey Baby, and uh, some other songs with a friend of mine, Margaret Cobb, lived in Irving, Texas, not far away. Met her through her guitar-playing brother, Buddy Combs. He said, I worked with him at this place, and he said, you should go meet my sister. She said, she's a songwriter. Y'all could write good songs together. And I did, met Margaret, and we, we wrote a lot of songs together. Uh, she was a really good writer and a sweet person and helped me a lot, encouragement. And she had two boys at that time. They were just tots, but they're grown men now, and they share in her royalties. Uh, Margaret deceased years ago. But uh, you just uh, keep moving, meeting people, working, plying your trade, try to write a song. And uh, I'm not being preachy, but you asked me about my life, and that's what it was about. Take your talent and use it like a crowbar, you know? And the only defense that a writer has is to write. Yeah. Whether it's a hit or not, you have to write another one, don't you? Andres? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Did you? Did but you I, that's kind of long-winded. But that's that's kind of how I got rolling. Yeah. Did you meet Delbert McClinton around the same time, or was that later? Well, Delbert was during the time I was writing with Margaret. I I had been writing with her since I was about eighteen, and this by this time I was about twenty. So we'd been writing about two years and had several songs and. <clears throat> excuse me, Marvin Montgomery, who was working with us at the time and was the manager of the Light Crust Doughboys, a Western group that was sponsored by Burris Mills Flower Company. And they'd go to store openings all over the country and stuff like that. And I got a chance to go with them and, you know, be the young singer with the show and do some a little bit of rock and roll with them and stuff like that. And... Uh, and Marvin was uh, so good. He'd worked uh, since the 40s. He was a great banjo player, you know. Smokey Montgomery, he was known as. He was on King Records back during those days with Sid Nathan. And uh, every time he came across an opportunity, he'd call me and try to include me, you know. Said, let's, let's go to this studio. Let's go to that studio. And we wound up doing some records together. And and they released a couple of them at Teenager Records, I think. Run, Romance, Run was the first thing that I had out. And it's just a little teenage thing, you know, trying to get an Elvis sound or something like that, you know, just to get a record, do some music. And we were doing a, original songs, though. Um, and from there, I just kept doing that. And Marvin said, there's a guy in Fort Worth you need to go meet. I've been working with him in the studio, and... He's had this uh, group, Rick and the Kings, and they had a pretty good record on Peanuts. And um, he works with the labels, and he'd make and do something. He said, take a couple of songs and go sing them for him. So I called Bill and made a date and went over and uh, sang him uh, Dream Girl, which I had finished, and um, Hey Baby. And he said, yeah, he said, I like those. He said, we'll go to the studio and do them. He said, I'm doing a girl now named Trudy Colvin, and I want an answer to Hit the Road Jack by Ray Charles. So I went home and wrote him, Come Back, Jack. <laughs> and he liked it and recorded it on Trudy, but bless her heart, I don't think she had a hit with it. But, but he was trying. He's always trying. He would tell uh, Bob Sullivan, the engineer, he said, book me some time uh, next Saturday. And he said, who are we doing? He said, I don't know. I'll find somebody. That's the kind of guy he was. He really worked at it. And if he liked you enough to record it, he'd go to the trouble to get the records pressed, 
load them in his car, take them to the radio stations, and get them played. You know, he's a hard worker. It was hard to do, you know. Just like it's hard now, it was hard then, even harder. You had less audience, fewer radio stations, I suppose. There grew to be a lot, but... So, so it was just a uh, doggone hard work, you know. So did you end up recording Hey Baby on the first session with him? Yeah. Uh, we he uh, we went to the studio to do the sessions, and I met Delbert McClinton, who played the harmonica on Hey Baby, at great opening. And uh, he had a band called the Straight Jackets, and they played the local clubs with all the blues players that would come to town, Jimmy Reed, uh, Howlin' Wolf, all those people. And then they would have other gigs booked north of Fort Worth up in the smaller towns. And Dilbert and them would go play with them at their other gigs, too, you know. So they were doing that. And he was in the studio a lot with uh, Major Bill Smith. And uh, we showed up that day and he introduced Dilbert. And I sh he said, show him the songs we're going to do. So I had my guitar and I showed Dilbert and the band. I said, this is what we're doing. And they played along and got it and said, Okay, yeah, and we rehearsed it for a second, and they said, yeah, I think, think we got that. So, uh, Bob Sullivan was the engineer. He was also the engineer at KWKH the day my dad walked in to try to get me a job there. <laughs> it was just kind of ironic that he shows up these years later in the studio in Fort Worth at Clifford Herring Sound, and they said, okay, let's tape one. So we did one, and he said, that's pretty good. He said, let's do it one more time. So we did it again. And Marvin came on the mic and he said, wait a minute. He said, it needs a, a piano. I'm going to come put a spine in it. So <laughs> well, he came out and played the piano with us, you know, on the third time that we did it. And we got through and uh, Bill Smith said, uh, sounds good. Come in and listen to it. <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> But yeah, we went in, and it, it all came together for some reason. It all just kind of popped together, you know. And he called, Bill Smith called a friend of his, played it for him on the phone, and asked him if he liked it. And he said, yes, he liked it. And he said, do you like it $500 worth? And he said, I don't know if I like it that much. <laughs> so he said, okay, it's a hit, you cotton picker. Everything was a cotton picker to Major Bill Smith. It's a cotton picking smash. So he went to work on it, you know, and got it... Uh, in the local charts, the local radio stations, in a five-state area, he went to every station, and they were playing it sometimes, and <clears throat> they'd have a contest, a record of the week, and uh, whoever won through the week would be featured on a new bunch of records, and you pick the record of the week this week, you know. So Hey Baby was up against Little Bitty Tear by Burl Ives, and... Um, I had been playing parties around our area forever, you know. All the kids from Irving, Fort Worth, Dallas, around that area, and Euless, Bedford, Texas, which had grown into a big bedroom community not far from Grapevine. All those kids, I knew them at L.D. Bell High School and all that kind of stuff. And I'd, we'd played. They, they knew us and that kind of thing, you know. So when they heard that record, they just started flooding the radio station, voting for it, you know. And the dish jockey uh, said, well, Little Bitty Tear is our new record of the week. And he told me, if I came and did an interview with him later, he said, the switchboard lit up. 
And everybody was saying, you've made a mistake. Hey, baby is the best record you played all week, <laughs> which was kind of funny. But they, they said, yes, we agree. So they, that meant it got played every hour with the top 30, top 20, whatever it was. It got played every hour around. And then KLIF in Dallas did the same thing. KLT in Houston, same thing. And by this time, when it made number one there, it was number one in about three different states and coming up in all the local charts, you know, and it had been listed in Billboard way down, you know, in Mercury Records, got a hold of Bill Smith, Charlie Fash, uh, which Mercury Records on Smash label. <clears throat> he wanted it for that. Roger Miller was on Smash and uh, Wooden Heart by, was it Ronnie McDowell? Yeah. I'm, I'm not certain, but... They'd had a few records, and they were an offshoot of Mercury Records. And they took Hey Baby and took it to number one. They sure did. I did a tour with Fast Domino and Brooke Benton and uh, The Impressions, you know, all those great groups, uh, Duke of Earl. <laughs> it was really fun. I enjoyed that. And then Delbert and I went to England that summer of 62, um, June 4th to July the 4th, I think it was. We came home on July the 4th. But it was a lot of fun. We met a lot of people, met the Beatles there. That was fun. Uh, we didn't know they were the Beatles, you know, at that time. They were a good group. We thought it was kind of a strange name, but they played really good. They were on the shows, and they were doing cover songs, but they played good. It sounded great. Pete Best was a drummer. Ringo hadn't joined them yet. Yeah, and I saw that photo of you and Delbert with them. You guys have to have took that photo with the two of you and the Beatles. Oh, I, yeah. I saw that. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it was all of them, except uh, Pete Best is in the picture. Uh, Ringo's not. But that was uh, Paul's brother, uh, Michael McCartney. He was always taking pictures everywhere they went and all kinds of stuff. So he put out this book called Mike, Michael Max, Whites and Blacks Plus One Color is the name of the book. And all those pictures from those times are in that book. Yeah, and there's that story that the Beatles actually liked you guys' sound so much that they started incorporating the harp in some of their earlier records, too. Well, it, it was confirmed later, and uh, you, when you think back on it, John had asked Delbert in the dressing room to play something for him. So he loved his harmonica playing. Would he play something? Delbert got his harp out and played some. <clears throat> played some for him, and he said, I love that sound, I want to use that sometime. And uh, sure enough, he did on Love Me Do. And I think Hard Day's Night, he might have played a harmonica on that somewhere. In it. Mm. Anyway, that, yeah, and it, it's gratifying that he was impressed by Delbert's playing, you know, off our record. And they were doing, they did Hey Baby. They said they do it. Yeah, and Hey Baby, the song, it's just... Obviously, it was a number one hit then, but it has this impressive afterlife, too. It got recorded by a lot of people. Uh, Anne Murray had a hit with it. And then the one of the first time I heard it in Austria, there's this like electronic music guy, DJ Ötzi, who, DJ who had Ötzi. like a huge international hit about 15 years ago, maybe. Yeah, he, he had a great record with it. I was thinking about it. Uh, I thought, well, how many times has Hey Baby been a hit? And, uh, and I got thinking about it, and I thought, well, an actual big hit. So I recorded it first, and then 
uh, Jose Feliciano had a pretty good record with it. And then uh, Ringo cut it, had a pretty good record with it. Then Ann Murray did it, had a number one record with it. DJ Oti did it and had a big record with it. And Dirty Dancing. So it's been a hit six times. And thank you, folks. I can't thank you enough. How, how could I ever thank you enough? I couldn't. And it was just a little old song that we were blessed with one day. We were just hard scrabble, wrestling with it, trying to get through life, you know, and you're blessed with something like that. You just have to be grateful and just show up for work when you're asked, you know. Yeah, and you, you continued cutting records through the 60s, but then you decided to move to Nashville to be a songwriter here. What, what made you want to move here? Um, I had toured England, let's say, for the third time. And I did a show with the Beach Boys and, and some other acts over there. And, and I met my now wife, Christine, worked for uh, the agency that had booked me for the tours. And uh, we spent some time together, and I, I really enjoyed it. She's beautiful, and I enjoyed just talking with her. She's smart and level-headed, you know, and, and pushed me in the right direction and that kind of thing, you know. But she wasn't convinced about me, <laughs> a rock and roller. She didn't much like rock and rollers. <laughs> she had booked, uh, you know, the Stones and some people, and she wasn't really carried away with that scene. She didn't much care for it. And she thought I was kind of a part of that somewhere or another. I don't know. I, I, I was just a singer. <laughs> but anyway, a friend of hers brought her around and said, no, he's a nice guy. You ought to go out with him, you know. So I took her to dinner, and, and we talked. And then um, I met her folks and then st stayed with them on the tour that I was doing, went to their house and stayed there. Of course, we were gone a lot on the tour from there. And met them, and uh, then she came over and for a, a visit, you know, to meet my folks and that kind of thing. She just loved it. She wanted to stay. So we arranged it where she could, and we got married in uh, 1971. And uh, still married and still rocking and enjoying it, you know. Yeah. So you guys lived in Texas for a while before you moved here? Yes. Uh, at that time, uh, my folks lived in Colleyville, Texas. And my dad had always uh, said to each of my brothers, I have uh, three brothers, and as each one got married, he'd offer them this property next door to him. He said, if you wanted to build a house, it's yours. And they were all busy going off somewhere else. And Christine and I really hadn't thought about where we were going to live. We'd kind of rented a place, but we thought, and he said, just if you want this property, you can have it. So we built a house there. Christine and I built a house. And we lived there for about, three or four years, and I kind of pulled back out of the clubs and playing so much and and even thinking about touring or anything like that, we just kind of quit it for a while, you know? <clears throat> and my neighbor, uh, R.B. Vincent, R.B.'s such a great guy. He was always such a great neighbor and a friend. I was just around the house writing songs. I wasn't really doing a whole lot, you know, and hadn't thought about it, what I was going to do next. And he came over one day, and he says, uh, Let's go get us a job. I said, okay, where? He said, the city of Grapevine Parks Department is looking for uh, people that are able to, uh, you know, do whatever you would do to a house, plumbing, wiring, 
cleaning, uh, bulldozers, baseball fields, whatever they need, that's what you do, you know, for the parks department. So I said, yeah, that sounds fun. So we went up and applied, and uh, they hired us right away, wanted us to come right away, and we did. And I worked there for, I think, going on the second year. And uh, my folks had moved. They decided to go back to East Texas, where they were from. And um, Christine and I had our pets, and we had our home, and we were rocking along, and I was working, and she was busy, and we were having fun. And a friend of mine, Hal Bynum, came to Fort Worth to visit Bill Mack at WBAP, All Night Road Show. You may have heard of it. Bill's such a great friend for years and years. He play our records when nobody else would. <laughs> He's a great guy. We've known him a long time. So Hal called me and said, come over and meet me. I'm doing the Bill Mack show. And I said, oh, you are? And he said, yeah. He said, we're going to talk about my new song. And I had heard you picked a fine time to leave me Lucille on the radio. And I thought, man, that's a smash. I didn't know Hal had written it. And I said, what are you doing? He said, uh, you picked a fine time to leave me Lucille. He said, that's my song. I said, you got to be kidding. I heard it and knew it was a hit. He said, yeah, we're, come over and be with us. And I said, okay. So I went that night at midnight. I went over to WBAP and talked with them and interviewed and clowned around and had fun. And afterward, Hal said, you ought to consider coming to Nashville. I think you could do real good there. And you can stay with me until you find a place and I'll introduce you to the people I know. So I went home and asked Christine, I said, what do you think about going to Nashville? <laughs> she said, well, sounds like a good idea. If you want to, that's what we'll do. So the next day, I called Hal, and he said, yeah, come on, we'll be waiting for you. And we stayed with him for a week. We found another place and moved to our own place, but... <clears throat> That, that next day, I went out to the yard to put a for sale sign in the yard, and a couple came in the driveway <laughs> and said, we want to buy your house. And uh, they had seen us. Uh, they lived around the corner, their folks, with their folks down there. And they saw me putting that for sale sign and just came in and said, we want to buy your house. So I said, well, okay. So we worked out a deal between us with them, and they got the house, and we came to Nashville. And, that, and uh, that was I was here a couple of years before anything happened. I had done a lot of different things. You moved in 78? 78, yeah. We left uh, Colleyville and came to Nashville in 78. Sure did. Yeah. And then eventually, success Sorry? Eventually, success started. Yeah. It, it took like a, a year or so. You know, uh, Howland, you know, opened uh, <coughs> his book to the people that he knew. Don Gant at Tree. Don ran Tree Publishing for five years, and it was the number one country music publisher in the world for the five years that he ran it, and it may still be. It's now called Sony. Sony owns old Tree Music, Buddy Killen's company. <clears throat> and Don ran the company for Buddy. And he introduced me, Hal introduced me to him and to Sonny Throckmorton, Bobby Braddock, Rafe Van Hoy, just right down the line, Curtis Putman. I mean, you folks may not be familiar with these names, but Curtis Putman wrote Green, Green Grass of Home. How's that for an opener? Yeah. <laughs> My Elusive Dreams. Just all these great writers, this great talent all around you. And you want so much to be a part of it, you know. So I, I'd go in every day. 
and then just to see who was there and say hey and try to write something and get you know get something going if you can and uh, it had been kind of exasperating because it's a it's a hard deal you got to come with something you know and Don was really friendly and nice and I was helping Red Lane tear a DC-8 apart <laughs> out on uh, an unused runway at uh, the airport down here. He had bought one, and he lived in it for 30 years. <clears throat> Moved it to Ashland City and lived in it for 30 years after that. But we helped him tear that apart and put it on a low boy and load it up to Ashland City for one job that I did. You know, it's kind of fun. And Don came out, and they brought a keg of beer to celebrate Friday. It was the end of the work week, you know, and like that. And Don came over to me. I was sitting on a running board of this old car that belonged to Red. It's a fixed-up, really hot jalopy, but I was sitting on a running board of it. And uh, Don came over and said, what's going on? And I said, I was just thinking, Don, i got to find a way to get a song cut, you know. And he said, I'll tell you what, man. You write me a hit song, I'll go get it cut. And I said, well, you can't be fairer than that. I'll try. <laughs> My sister-in-law had asked me about a song that I'd been writing. And I, she said, what did you do with that party song? And I said, well, I, I haven't finished it. And she said, I really like that. You ought to finish that one. So I went home that night thinking about that, and I got my paper out and my coffee and my guitar and sitting there. And I, I had part of it. You know, I had the uh, kind of chorus part to start with, but then it had to go somewhere after that. You know, you gotta, gotta be a break in the music. It's gotta lift, it's gotta go somewhere. And I finally found that part that night. And, uh, and I wrote a song called Party Time. Whoa, whoa, it's party time. Time to get you off my mind. Forget the life I left behind. And all those dreams that won't come true. So I got that finished. Took it to Don. He we went to the studio, put it down. He took it upstairs to Buddy Killen. Said, "I've just cut this on Bruce Chanel. See what you think of it." And he listened to it. He said, "It's a hit. I want to do it on." Uh, <laughs> he had artists that he was recording and looking for songs, you know. <clears throat> and T.G. Shepard, he was recording him at the time, so T.G. did it and had number one record with it. So we got really lucky and it happened again you know and then from there just I wrote other songs with a, a great writer named Kieran Kane Kieran's such a great artist and a writer and um, enjoy working with him and he cut you're the best yeah he sure did had a top 10 record with you're the best and I and I toured with him for a little bit while he was doing that he's an artist now I mean an actual artist that can draw beautiful paintings of uh people or anything and it's really distinctive art and I can't wait for the world to discover his art because it really is good but Kieran is a great guy and so we wrote uh, we started working together quite a bit and uh, we wrote a song called as long as I'm rocking with you and took it to Bud Logan and he did John Conley on it and they had a number one record with that and so we just kept plugging at it and coming and trying to write the songs, you know. <clears throat> and then uh, Deborah Allen came over one day and said, look, I've got this idea that uh, we need to write. And we were going down the hall at a place called Bullet Studios. And um, Rafe Van Hoy, her husband at the time, was recording a guy in that studio, and we were going down to see him. 
And as we went by, we had been messing with this line a little bit. <clears throat> and uh, Deborah and I decided there's a room off to the left that just had boxes stacked in it. And instead of going to the studio, we went in that room and Kieran said, I'm going to see what they're doing. So we went in this room and sat down with the guitar and, and got it out and we started singing. Don't worry about me, baby. I'll be all right. Don't worry about me, baby. Just love me tonight. And uh, we had been working on it, and then Kieran came back in. He said, wait a minute. He said, I can see the studio later. Let's write this song. <laughs> so we sat down and, and wrote that song that day, Don't Worry About Me, Baby. And Janie Freaky took that to number one. So bless your heart, Janie. And, and just keep on working at it like that, you know? Yeah. And uh, another one that is one of my favorite is stand-up. Well, <laughs> yeah, old stand-up was a... <clears throat> it's funny, a, a gospel group came to Don Gant, who had always been our publisher during that time, and uh, said, I, I had to pull my car off the road when I heard that song. He said... That's exactly the tune and the treatment that I want to do this gospel song that I want to do. And Don was kind of taken aback, and he said, well, you know, you could, you could write your own music and do your own song, you know? And he said, no, it's that beat and that feel and everything that I want. And Don said, well, I, I'm not changing the publishing or the writing on that song. And he said, we don't care. <laughs> We want to do it. We just want to put our words to it and put it out. So Don said, okay. So they wrote their own version of it. But stand-up is more the secular version <laughs> of what they did, you know. Uh, my friend Ricky Ray Rector and I worked a lot with Don Gant all those years. And Ray was uh, in the back room one day messing with this guitar lick. And I, I had just got some coffee and walked in that morning. I said, Ray, what is that? He said, oh, it's just a deal I came up with. And he said, it sounds good, don't it? I said, yeah, it's a song, man. I don't know what it is, but that's got a whole song in it. His intro, uh, Ray's such a great player anyway, he'll pull you away with that. But So we started messing with it, and we finally, he's playing this great lick to it, and we come and say, stand up, have you ever been there? Stand up. Identify. We were just kind of going over that back and forth and trying to get something else. Sonny Throckmorton walked through the door and said, What are y'all doing? <laughs> we're trying to get this song down. He said, Play it. So it went back through it like that. He said, Oh, yeah, I like that. I could help you right there. <laughs> he said, Sure, we'll come on in. And Sonny helped us, and we finished it, you know, that day. Uh, it did stand up. And uh, I didn't know it at the time, but uh, the song in the video that they did with Gaylord Sartain and that guy that was actually a judge, he was a, he was a part of it, I think. And uh, that was, I think, one of the first videos. <laughs> that was like 1980 where they doing, they just started doing videos, kind of country music videos, hadn't they? Yeah. And uh, that was, but that was a great video of stand-up. I love that, that, that really showed the song, you know. Yeah, and that became a big hit for Mel McDaniel. Yeah, Mel, uh, and he was great in the video, too. 
Oh, Gaylord Sartain, you might remember him from Hee Haw. He could make his eyes go back and forth real fast. Uh, he's a funny guy, a great guy. He was the guy on trial, and they're waiting for him. And he's waiting for Mel to come and save him, you know. And he didn't make it there. So he said, what am I going to do? So he tries to escape the courtroom, and just as he does, here comes Mel walking in, you know, with his hat and his cane and that kind of stuff. And, and saved his bacon, you know, because he, he just tells it in front of the jury and the judge, you know. Ever had a hot day? One of those can't wait. You know, he's singing it to him, And uh, all the people in the court finally had to agree, yeah, that, that's happened to me. So Great. I loved it. And then... And I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, and also later on, I guess in the mid-'90s, when, when the band uh, reunited... They record a version of that song with Levon singing. Yeah, Levon. And, and that's a great version, too. Oh, he's such a great guy. I love Levon. I met him in California back in the 70s. And um, I, when I left, he said he gave me his number and said, call me. He said, I'm, I'll be back in Arkansas, you know, in a short time. He said, give me a call. So when I got back to Texas, after about a couple of weeks, I thought, I'll give Levon a call. And I called that number, and his dad answered. And I said, I was trying to find Levon. And he said, Bruce, he said, he's gone off up somewhere up there. said, there's going to make him up a band. <laughs> and I said, well, tell him I said hello when you do. And, uh, and hung up. So that's when he had left there and met those guys and went to Toronto, I suppose. Because uh, he used to work in Canada a lot. You know, a whole with, lot. With Ronnie Hawkins. But he went to New York, I think it was, with a Big Pink, that house, and that was that first album they did together. Well, years later, he had been touring, and they'd come to Nashville and play. And I always go see him and say, hey, you know. And this night, they were staying the night, and uh, so I went to visit him at his hotel up there. And just kind of, I had brought my guitar, and... Uh, Rick Danko liked to sit around and pick and play like that. So we were just picking and going. And <clears throat> and uh, Levon said, uh, we're going to get ready to do us an album, you know. And uh, I said, well, let me play this song for you, see if you like it. You know, so I did him stand up. He said, yeah. He said, I hear that like Boom Ching. I really love that. He said, we'll do that one. <laughs> and they did. They have it on a High on a Hog album. So I was just so grateful. And, that they did that just loved old Levon he's great and there's another song that's a favorite of mine and of that's a song called Friends yeah Friends I, I wrote with uh, my friend Ricky Ray Ricky Ray Rector and uh, he's the guy that was playing the lick on stand up <laughs> and he's just a great player and uh, <clears throat> it's, it's fun to get to work with all these people and uh, Donnie Keys was at the studio at the time. We were working at Don Gant's studio, and um, we wrote that song together. And uh, all, of, all of us has done a version, you know, I mean, of a, a demo of the thing. But um, I appreciate you liking it. I, I, I've done that, and folks really do like it. You know, it's about your friends, how important your friends are in mm -hmm. your life, you know. Did you have anybody in mind when you wrote that song, or did you just... B.B. King? Uh, I just, I could just hear him sing it, you know. I just, I would have loved it if he could have done that. But, 
I never thought in the world that it would be like a country hit. I, di I didn't feel it that way at all, you know. But the guy that was uh, producing Mill McDaniel at the time, uh, I saw him at a golf tournament, and as I, I walked up toward his court, uh, he said, boy, I like that stand-up. He said, uh, of course, it, it was a hit for him. He said, I immediately heard it. That That's the way he heard it, you know. And my demo was more laid back, like a more bluesy kind of thing, you know. So uh, <clears throat> it's been done a lot of lot of different kind of ways, but Mel's was number one, so that was great. Yeah. So somebody else you've, collaborate with a lot is Larry Hanley. Yeah. How did you meet Larry? How how did you meet him? Um, Larry, it's funny enough that Larry was born at Arp, Texas, which is about 20 miles or so from Jacksonville, Texas, where I was born in East Texas, both of us. But we took separate trails away, and I didn't ever run into him till we came to Nashville. And I was at Don Gantz Publishing Company, old friends. And he would come over, and we'd spend time, and his attorney, Charlie, was a good friend and still is today. And uh, we'd just spend time together and kind of hit it off for some reason. And, and, and it must be all that familiarity that we didn't even know about from that time. But we just became real tight friends, and... And got to go do some golf tournaments, and uh, uh, Larry well, didn't like to perform anymore. But I kind of encouraged him, you know, to because he'd want us to get up and do "Hey Baby" and this, and I'd get him to do "Wind Beneath My Wings," and especially uh, get him to do uh, bread "I Like butter. Bread and Butter." Yeah, you know, people didn't realize what a star he was before that because he didn't perform it anymore like that. So he he had fun doing that, and I'm glad we did that. Yeah, we got to be kind of a duo going to do those things, and and we'd do golf tournaments, and then they had some oldie shows that we'd go and do those two, not as a, a duo. He would be on his himself, and I would go on and do Hey Baby and that kind of thing. But we just did a lot of those together, and it's so much fun. He's such a talented person and a giving person and <clears throat> just just a little old genius at putting things together in his mind. You know, a song, he song, he... Uh, he saw songs in their completion, you know, he, the beginning and the end. It was just amazing how cute his mind was at those things. And um, he, he had a great career, uh, wrote Wind Beneath My Wings, which was a Grammy winner and Song of the Year and all kind of things. So we just started working together and we'd go out to Ricky Ray, he had a studio, and we'd go out and uh, spend the day writing. And so we did an album and put some songs together called, and we called it Original Copy. And um, just wanted to do something together. And so that's what we did. And we did, we made that album and put it together with some great songs. And Larry wrote also, you know, like Shotgun Writer. He's had big copyrights all over the years. Uh, Is It Still Over? That was his song, you know, him. And he had co-writers that he wrote those things with too. But, uh, yeah, he's a great guy, and what a great writer. We miss him. Yeah. So you mentioned that original copy record, and even before that, I guess in 95, you did another record as an album called Stand Up. Uh, and and I, I think 
Dalbert might have played on it, and you did. He did. I think on a couple of things he did. Um, um, I was asked to do an, an album, and uh, I got thinking about it, and uh, I'm trying to think of all these names, you know, to a certain specific time in your life, and they don't come right away anymore. <laughs> but I do remember doing that album, and they were, they were just a collection of songs that we liked. Uh, I think I may have done stand-up on it, and, and I can't remember all the songs on it now, but maybe another one. But most of them were from writers uh, in the like Jackson, Tennessee, in Memphis, in that area. I recorded the album in Memphis. I think it was Crossroads Studios, is where they did it, and um, it was uh, for Ice House Records. <clears throat> and um, I don't know what whatever happened with it, what they did, because I was mainly doing it. Because uh, I liked the guy uh, that was producing the record, and he had picked some good songs, and they were good topics. There was only one that I kind of turned down. I didn't want to sing a song about getting kicked in the head by the Jackson police, <laughs> so I passed on that one, but I'm sure somebody else did it, and it was probably a hit. But yeah, that was, that was one that I did. And then I did uh, the Keep On album, with Dale Hawkins, that was like 68, I think, somewhere in there. Uh, and Keep On was written by Wayne Carson. And, and that also was a, a hit in called, the UK. That song was a hit in the UK for you, too. Yeah, and then the next one they released was Mr. Bus Driver. Wayne wrote that song also. Some guy said it was uh, the letter rewritten on a bus. <laughs> and I suppose it was, but it's about a guy wanting to get back to his girl, you know. So, And it was a good record. Yeah, and more recently, yeah. you've done a couple of records, too, that you have for sale whenever you do shows, and those I really enjoy. And one of those songs is called Christine that you wrote about your wife. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that song? Um, Larry had a girlfriend named Linda, and uh, he came in and said, I want to write a song for Linda. So we said... Okay, what are we going to write? And he said, I want a whole lot of Linda. So I said, okay, let's get after it. So we wrote this song, I want a whole lot of Linda, TLC, some convalescing, a little love IV. Just let me stay there till I get my fill. What a doctor can't cure, a whole lot of Linda will. So we did that. <clears throat> and uh, so Christine had said, well, you could write one about me too. <laughs> no, not really. But we just kind of thinking about it. And they said, well, write one about Christine. It was, so we got the food around. That's, and after we finished it, I said, well, I didn't know y'all felt that way about her too. <laughs> but they let me kind of, you know, take the lead on it and go, you know, with the thing. But it turned out to be a, a good song. I sing for Christine was the name of it, or is the name of it. Uh, and it turned out to be a, a good, I like a recording of it, and I included it on an album of songs that we had been doing, like with original copy, and some other songs that I just recorded with Ray and in the studio and like that, and put an album together because I was doing some touring, and I'd do the cruise with Delbert, 
And so I'd take, you know, some copies on the cruise and like that and sell them. Um, and I still have uh, some of those. But they were just really kind of a pitch thing. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not like you were trying to get to a major label because that that, that ain't going to happen, you know. But it was just, just, just fun to do it and keep doing the music. It, it, regardless of uh, who wants it, you have to do it. You get it out of your system. Absolutely. And I'm glad the folks like what comes out because sometimes it's a pretty good song, maybe. Yeah. You just mentioned Dalbert's Cruise, and obviously you've been friends with Dalbert for many, many years, but you've also participated in quite a few of his cruises that happen every January. It's called the Sandy Beaches Cruise. Yeah. How's What kind of experience is that, participating in the cruise? When Delbert first started it, he called and said, uh, I'd like for you to come on a cruise with me. So I asked Christine, and she hadn't been on one. She said, what do you do on a cruise, read a book? And I said, well, I don't know. I've never done one either. And we didn't go. So the next year, we didn't go. And he called me that third year, and he said, look, do it one time. If you don't like it, you don't ever have to do it again. But give it a shot. So we said, okay, we will. <laughs> well, we just finished the 24th <laughs> cruise with Delbert. We finally we found out we really did like it and love the people. They, they're just great folks looking for a good time. They love your songs. They want to hear you sing. And, and so it's great fun, and we've, we've enjoyed every year of it. I don't know if it's that. See, I think, uh, I think we missed the first two. So I think next year is 25, so that means the last year was, what, 23 or something? I don't remember now, but <laughs> they kind of fold together after the years. But we've yeah. been on many of them, and every one of them just great. We love it. And you will, too. Yeah. I have never been on one, but I certainly would like to Would like to uh, go maybe next year or the year after that. A, a, a lot of folks on the cruise, that's their vacation. That's what they, That's their big vacation. Some of them stay in Miami another two weeks or something, you know, afterwards or go to the Everglades, and they just make their family outing of it, you know. And uh, it's mostly, you know, like a... Not the younger folks. There's some young folks, the kids and things, that, and they're welcome. You know, all of them are welcome. Everybody's welcome. But it's mostly older folks uh, that maybe their kids are grown now and on their own way. Some of them come with them even. You know, now they say, oh, yeah, we want to go on that because it's a blues cruise. There's nothing stuffy about it. The only rule is don't wear your bathing suit to the dining room. You know, and that's pretty simple. Yeah. <laughs> So besides doing the cruise and performing and writing still occasionally, you've all also got inducted into the Rockabilly Hall of Fame and the Texas Songwriters Hall of Fame. What does it mean to to be, you know, part of a Hall of Fame or like, you know, honored for your 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 lifetime achievement? Uh it it's just humbling, you know, that uh Anybody's heard your music, you know, much less um, been affected by it and liked it and uh, and wanted to meet yourself, you know, and that kind of thing. It's always gratifying to think that somebody recognized uh, the work that you'd put in, you know, so, and that's good. But outside of that, you know, it's, uh, 
I don't think it's something that uh, everybody, you know, especially needs 10 or 12 of, you know. I mean, to get recognized is, is really nice, and it's good, and it does show that you've made it to a certain point, I suppose. But I'm grateful to all those people that feel that way, and, uh, and I'm glad to be a part of it. It just uh, thrills me to death that anybody would like your music, you know, and for, to have that many folks in favor of it really makes you feel good. Very gratifying, and I appreciate every one of them. Yeah. So do you feel, in our conversation, we touched on the most important parts of your career, or do you feel we missed anything? Well, maybe the part we haven't missed is what hadn't come yet. You well, know, So we're just going to keep on plugging and keep doing it, you know, as long as uh, that's possible, because... It's the most gratifying thing I've ever done in my life is to is write a song and and have folks think, I really like that. That's a good song, you know. That makes you feel good. Makes you feel like you accomplished something. Yeah. And uh, we can always reconvene in a couple of years and talk about the more recent the more recent stuff. And uh, thank you so much for being my guest today and sharing all these wonderful stories. Well, Andreas, I thank you for having me, man. It's just been a blast, and I hope I wasn't too long-winded for you. <laughs> but it's kind of a long tale now. <laughs> and uh, just to all your fans and to all our fans, God bless you for giving us a shot. You know, we'll keep trying for you. And, Andreas, thank you so much, partner. Thank you, Bruce. <laughs> This was the 25th episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at Creative Workshop Recording Studio in Nashville. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. Until next week. Music